God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's open in a word of prayer this morning, a few moments of silent prayer. Utilize First John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure that we're in fellowship and ready to concentrate and take in the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have revealed to us your Word and that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, that all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by you, so that it makes us profitable for every good work, that there is no issue in life, no problem, no heartache, no difficulty, no challenge, no area of intellectual investigation or study that we do not learn something about and we are not provided a framework about from your inerrant, infallible Word. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that we can understand them, that we can concentrate, that we can focus, and that we can see how these things apply in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the 13th chapter of John. We are now down to verse 31. John chapter 13, verse 31. By way of review, chapters 13 through 16 are known as the Upper Room Discourse. This takes place during the time when uh, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, when He is celebrating the Passover meal with His disciples. And as I stated when we began this study, there is a major shift in the thematic structure of the Gospel of John. For example, earlier the issue was the presentation of Jesus to the people, and so there is a clear presentation of the gospel, and as Jesus is the light of the world, plus his rejection uh, by the people. In the first 12 chapters, the word love appears only six times. In two of those times, it refers to the people love the darkness, or the priests love the uh, approval of the people. So it's not even used in a positive context there. So there's only four times when it refers to either love for God or love for man. But starting in chapter 13 in this upper room discourse, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and then the what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17, love is used 27 times. Now, it doesn't take a genius or Bible scholar or even somebody with the gift of pastor teacher to recognize that there is certainly a major shift in subject matter and that everything that, that Jesus says to his disciples from this point on has to do with the subject of love. And he, it's not this 
warm, fuzzy, emotional, sentimental, feel-good that we associate with love. That's and more I study this subject, and we've hit it about three times in the last year, I think, at least, maybe, maybe more in our study in James, our study in Galatians, once or twice in our study of John, we began to gradually unpack and understand what the Scripture says about this phenomenal subject called love. It's hard to define love. In the last couple of weeks, I've been interacting with some people uh, about the subject of love and how to define love. It's an awfully difficult thing. I've gone back into a number of systematic theologies. In fact, I discovered a statement that will surprise some of you that John Calvin made about love, that it not only was not emotion, but that there was no emotion in God. That always shocks 20th century Christians because we want God to have the same silly, superficial, sentimental emotionalism that we have. And yet that just cannot be substantiated by the scriptures. See, what we do is we tend to have our concept of love, and then we read the scripture, God is love, and we think God fits our concept of love. Rather than going to the scriptures and discovering what God says love is, and then conforming our understanding of love to the perfect standard in the scriptures. And this is hard for all of us because I notice when I go back and I read the... um, uh, commentaries, I read systematic theologians, I re- read those who have thought about these things, that either the definitions are superficial or what happens more often than not is there are no definitions given. It is extremely difficult to define love, even when you look in the dictionary use Webster's or the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, or American Heritage Dictionary. They always define love in terms of some sort of emotion, but emotion, by definition, is unstable. One day you have it, one day you don't. Your emotions shift with the circumstances, uh, depending on what you eat, depending on what you drink, depending on your health. Your emotions may be up one day, down the next, Uh, They are tossed to and fro by every wind of circumstance, and yet what the Scriptures portray as the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that we are to have for one another is radically different. It is stable. It never changes. It is built upon a bedrock, ultimately, of God's divine character. I like to say that we're to love other people as God loved us. That's the scriptural model. It is based not on who we are, but on who God is, His essence. So that means that if you're going to understand love, if we're going to understand love at all, we have to start with understanding the essence of God. That's why basic doctrine is so important. We have to start with the essence of God and understanding crucial issues in just what's called theology proper, basic doctrine about who God is. We're ever going to understand these things. So we, God's love is based on who he is and what Christ did on the cross. So that begins to remove love from the realm of subjectivity. The scriptures say there are clear, objective ways that you understand what love is and whether or not love is part of our life. Uh, one example is that scripture says, John, Jesus says it in John 15, John reiterates it in 1 John 
2 and again in 1 John 5. And that is the statement that Jesus makes, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there is a relationship between the degree of our obedience to divine mandates in Scripture and our obedience to the Lord and our love for Him. So it is not just a matter that you often find in churches of people just simply saying, oh, I love Jesus and I love the Lord and isn't the Lord wonderful and singing all these little Christian choruses today, these little ditties that make us feel so warm and fuzzy, especially this time of year. year. And there's nothing wrong... We're always going to have an emotional response. We're, God gave man emotion, and I'm not saying that emotion is wrong, but emotion's not the criterion. And we've all had those times in our Christian life when we either were freshly impacted with a truth of Scripture, a realization of the depth of God's grace for us, and we had some sort of emotional response. There's nothing wrong with that. You'd be a stump of wood if you didn't. But what happens is that, that that experience seems to be so real and so overwhelming and and so stimulating that we want to duplicate that in our life. We want to have that happen again. And all of a sudden, we begin to use that as the measuring rod for spirituality and our walk with the Lord and our relationship to Him so that when you're... Uh, sick with the flu or you're just tired and discouraged and you're going through the battle in life and being attacked on three or four different fronts at the same time and your emotions are down that you're saying somehow I must not be spiritual and that's putting making emotion a criterion in life and when we get into John 13, 14, and 15, we're going to unpack this idea, develop these thoughts more and more, and see that love as expressed in Scripture is objectifiable, it is stable, and it is built on knowledge and not emotion. In the context of John 13, John tells us in the first verse, Now before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus Knowing his hour had come, emphasis on Jesus' control of the circumstances, Jesus Christ's control of history, that his hour had come that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, last time we concluded with the study of Judas Iscariot. Just another point of observation, 13.1 the focus is on how Jesus loved his own to the end, but who was missing at the end? Judas went out. Jesus doesn't start talking to the disciples about love until Judas has departed. There are lots of little things like this that, are, that weave their way through this particular passage. Jesus has, in essence as part of Passover, cleansed the leaven from the those who were believers. And now that Judas is gone, he can address them as members of the royal family because now all are believers. He addresses them and, and uh, says, John tells us, that having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, to the fullest extent and to the end of his time on the earth. 
And then in verses 21 down through 30, we have the episode of the betrayal. A couple of points I did not make last week. I was caught short on time. I had to get out of here when I got out of here to make a flight to Dallas for that pre-trib rapture study group. One point I did not make was that in Matthew 26:24, Jesus made the comment, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Just another passage to emphasize the fact that Judas was not a believer. Jesus would never say that about a believer. Because a believer would still, even in carnality, would still be in heaven face to face with him at the point of death. But Jesus says that of Judas, it had been better of him that he had not been born. So once Judas goes out into the night, into the darkness, we see Jesus begin to explain um, to his disciples doctrines related to the coming church age. This is the importance of what's covered in the next few chapters. Verse 34, When therefore he had gone out. I want to emphasize the opening structure there because it tells us something about what precedes. You have the inferential particle un, O-U-N, which means therefore and draws a conclusion. When you go through seminary, you always pick up little cliché sayings about rules of interpretation, one of which is whenever you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. (laughs) So this is a conclusion that John is drawing. But what is he drawing the conclusion or inference from? Now that Judas has departed into the night, which in John's vocabulary always emphasizes darkness. It is man loves darkness rather than the light and will not accept the light. And so we see the imagery there that John uses that reality to bring in the imagery of Judas' rejection of Jesus. And so the conclusion is that now that he's gone, Jesus can say what he's getting ready to say. He can begin to teach the doctrines that he is going to teach because he has purified his audience. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the time, now is the Son of Man glorified. And a couple of points of grammar we need to emphasize here, and that is that we have the word in the Greek noon, N-U-N, which means now, But there are two different Greek words for now. The other is the Greek word arti, A-R-T-I, which also means now. But when they're used in the same context, and we'll see arti used again in verse 33, so they're used together, arti emphasizes a much more immediate sense of now, as in right now, as opposed to now noon, which is generally now in terms of today, tomorrow, these coming events. There is an immediacy to RT. And this helps us understand something about what Jesus is saying, because he says, Now is the Son of Man 
glorified. And he's not talking about right now as I sit here at this Passover meal, but he is talking about what is beginning to happen. We have an aorist. We have an aorist tense. Remember, aorist is a past tense. It's translated present in your English version. It's an aorist uh, passive here. And the passive voice indicates that the subject receives the action of the verb. So the Son of Man is receiving glorification. So the passive indicates reception. And the aorist tense is used here because it's what's called a future aorist. And it has an encoative sense, which means beginning, and it should be translated. It's used as a, it's a future aorist, meaning it's going to happen in the future, but its reality is so certain I can talk about it as having happened in past time. And it's encoative. It means it's inceptive. It's beginning. Now is the Son of Man beginning to be glorified. And this is referring to all that will take place from this moment on because Judas is going out to betray me and that's going to lead to my arrest and then the trial and then the crucifixion and then the death, burial and resurrection all of which glorifies Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to glorify? And I always like chavod which is the Hebrew word because those who grew up in the 70s and understood the slang there it has a relationship because in the Hebrew, chavod has a root meaning of being heavy. Heavy, man. Real heavy. So we get some heavy glorification of the Lord. And that's what it means. It means to put an emphasis on and to spotlight the essence of God. And here we are spotlighting the essence of who Jesus Christ is in the crucifixion. So the focus here is going to be on who God is and on His character. Now one of the problems that always occurred throughout the Old Testament is that until Christ was glorified, there was always a tension in the integrity of God. Remember, the integrity of God is made up of three of His characteristics. His perfect righteousness, His justice, and His love. And there is a tension because the righteousness of God is the standard of God's character. It is absolute perfection. And we know from Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of, what does that text say? Of the glory of God, which is His essence. That is His glory fall short of the glory of God, we fall short of His standard. The justice is the application of that standard in the affairs of His creatures. And love is the basic orientation or disposition of God's nature towards those with whom He is in relationship. Let me say that again. Love is the basic orientation or dispensation, disposition, orientation or disposition of God's character towards those with whom He is in relationship. Throughout all of eternity, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
God the Father is plus R. He is perfect. God the Holy Spirit is plus R. And God the Son is plus R. So there is perfect affinity and attraction between the three members of the Trinity. For righteousness can only love righteousness. And so he has the perfect disposition of what is best for the object of his love. And he is free to love personally each member of the Trinity, and each member of the Trinity is free to love one another within that context because they all have absolute perfect righteousness. And so they have absolute love towards one another, which is the disposition to do the absolute best and the highest good for the object of love. Now, when man is created... In the garden, Adam and Eve are created in the image and likeness of God, which means they too possess, at the instant they came from the hand of God, the perfect righteousness of God. God is perfect. He can create nothing less than perfection. So God created perfect Adam and Eve. And so God's plus R had affinity and attraction to the plus R of the creature. But when they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they lost perfection and there was a fall. And now Adam and Eve are minus R. And so God in His righteousness rejects their lack of righteousness, their unrighteousness. And so the justice of God then must condemn man in unrighteousness. But the love of God, because remember that is the orientation or disposition. The reason I use those words is because John tells us in two different passages in 1 John that God is love. It is a stative, is is called a stative or equative verb. And it emphasizes who he is in his essence. He's said to be holy, he is holy, and he is just. And holiness usually refers to the righteousness and justice of God. So we see this brought in together that at the very core of God's being, He is these three things. So this is the disposition to do the highest and best towards His creatures. And so that then becomes the initiator within the character of God and eternity past. God initiated a perfect plan of salvation because God knew in his omniscience, that man would fall and be in need of salvation. So then you see this problem in the Old Testament that God's righteousness demands a certain perfect standard. And in order for his justice to bless, that standard has to be met and the righteousness of God has to be satisfied. But this did not take place at all in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So what was the solution? Hold your place in John 13 and turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. This is an expression and will become a part of the definition for what love is. The exemplification of love for all time is what took place on the cross. God demonstrated or manifested His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, notice, we're in a status of rebelliousness, antagonism, and enmity towards God. You may be a wonderful person. You may have a 
an attractive personality. You may be popular among your friends and family. You may have be multi-talented. You may be wealthy. You may have everything that any human being could ever hope to have. And yet, as far as God is concerned, you're no better than anybody else in the human race. And you are despicable and obnoxious to Him because you are a sinner. And God's righteousness rejects that. But even though we were at enmity with God, He demonstrated His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the solution to the problem. Verse 25 of Romans chapter 3 reads, Whom God displayed... And the whom goes back to Christ Jesus at the end of verse 24. Whom God displayed publicly, that is, on the cross, a public condemnation, public execution, as a propitiation by means of His blood, literally, not in His blood, by means of a propitiation, by means of His blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. That means in the Old Testament, there was still a problem with God's justice and His righteousness, but He passed over those sins. Those are the sins previously committed. For the, And then verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the Greek word translated propitiation, and that is hilasterion. And H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And hilasterion relates in the Septuagint to a description of the mercy seat. So there is the connection with what I'm about to to say. Helosterion refers to propitiation or satisfaction. In other words, God has an absolute standard, His perfect righteousness, and in order for His justice to bless man, His standard must be satisfied. He can't just say, well, you're really a nice person and you worked hard, you tried hard, and you went to church every Sunday and you did as much as you could, and I'm satisfied. Because whatever satisfies His perfect righteousness must be perfect righteousness. That's why Christ had to go to the cross. And that's why whenever you're witnessing to somebody and they say, well, why? I just can't understand why, why we just can't just try to be good enough and why works aren't important. You can say that the reason works are not important is that if works were important, then Jesus would not have needed to die. And so if you try to emphasize works at all, you are blaspheming the cross. Now, the mercy seat is a place on the Ark of the Covenant that was the center point of worship in the temple in the Old Testament. It was a box of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was placed Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments, and manna. The reason those three things are there is they all illustrated an, an incident in Israel's history where they had disobeyed God. They had disobeyed the Ten Commandments. They had revolted against Aaron's leadership. And they had um, complained and griped and moaned in the, in the wilderness about God's provision for them uh, in spite of the manna. So uh, 
uh, you have these three things emphasizing their disobedience to God, and they're covered. A covering is placed. The lid is placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and this lid is called the mercy seat. And two angels of the class cherubim are set on top of the Ark of the Covenant looking down upon the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into the temple and he would place blood from the sacrifice on the mercy seat and it was this that represented the covering of blood over the sins of the people. And because the sins of the people were now covered by the blood of the sacrifice, the two cherubs, righteousness and justice, were satisfied. The cherubs, the I-M ending is a Hebrew I-M ending, the cherubs always represent and are always associated with the integrity and the holiness of God in the Scriptures. So what happens at the cross is that Jesus Christ dies and His death, it is not His physical blood, that it goes back to a medieval heresy, it is not His physical blood, but that blood, the Old Testament blood, was a representative metaphor that spoke of death. And it spoke of a sacrificial death. In the same way, the term blood of Christ is a term that refers not to His physical blood, but is representative of what is taking place in the physical realm, which is His spiritual death. So that on the cross, His death is a spiritual substitution It is not a physical substitution. Physical blood pays a physical penalty, and physical death is not the penalty for sin. Spiritual death is the penalty for sin, as seen in the fact that when Adam sinned, he did not die physically, but he did die spiritually. That was the immediate result. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m., And it was not until after 3 p.m. that he died physically. And before he died physically, he said, using a perfect tense form of the verb teleo, it is finished in the past, completed action, with results that go on forever. It meant paid in full. It meant that he had accomplished everything necessary for our salvation between 12 noon and 3 p.m. before he died physically. And incidentally, you do not bleed that much during crucifixion. We will get into all of the medical dynamics when we get there in our study of John. But you do not bleed that much. And it's intended for the death to be a very lingering death to take three or four days. And Jesus, after he had finished, uh, committed himself to the Father and died because it was accomplished. So his physical death was merely a sign that it had been accomplished and was finished and for him to go to the grave where he could have victory then over physical death, which was a consequence of spiritual death. So we see in Romans chapter 3 the explanation of the problem that Jesus is going to solve with his death. Now let's go back to John chapter 13. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man beginning to be glorified, and God is glorified. Again, an aorist, passive, indicative. God is beginning to be glorified, 
and I think it's an instrumental of means here, by means of him or through him. It is his death on the cross that is putting the spotlight on the character of God, his righteousness, his justice, and his love. And in that, God is going to be highlighted in terms of all of the all of the ramifications and all the dimensions of the work of salvation. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say, If, first class condition, if God is glorified in him, and he is, God will also, future tense now, God will also glorify him, the Son, in himself, the Father. And this is a reference to the ascension of the Lord back to the Father and his glorification in heaven, and will glorify him immediately, that is, right after that. So, we see in verse 32 a reference of what is taking place within the Godhead and the glorification of the Son by the Father because of what he does on the cross. And then in verse 33 we have a phrase that is the first time we run into it in the Gospel of John, it's a favorite phrase of John's in the epistles of John, but this is the first time we see it in the Gospel of John. He addresses his disciples, and now, since Judas has departed, he can say, little children. He could not say that while Judas was there because there was an unbeliever there, and as an unbeliever, we're not a member of the family of God. So now he can address them as members of the royal family, and he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. He's beginning to warn them that it will not be long before the ascension, uh, and he is gone. I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, that is, the Jewish leaders who are antagonistic to him, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Now this, of course, is going to cause some consternation among the disciples. And if you look down, just a little hint, look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, I take it. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus says the most important thing he's saying right now. That's the new commandment. But he prefaced that by saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. I don't think they heard another word. Peter, at least Peter didn't. Peter's sitting there going, well, where are you going, Lord? Why can't I go there? He's totally distracted. Doesn't that happen to you sitting out there in Bible class? I'll say something, and you immediately start running with that, and you quit listening. So, just because of my understanding of of Peter, and of human nature in general, I think that Peter's gone. He's already lost his concentration. He's trying to figure out where the Lord's going to go, and he doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to the most important statement here. Verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And then he repeats himself, and whenever the Lord repeats himself, we ought to pay attention. That you also love one another. And then he says, a most profound statement that we really ought to take some time to think about and meditate on in the quietness of your own life. Every time I come to this, I'm reminded of a paper I wrote in seminary on this, and every now and then I forget the principle here, as we all do, by this. In other words, it is by the love. This is not talking about just impersonal love for all mankind. 
This is not simply talking about Leviticus 19.18, Galatians 5.14, and James 2.8, which quote the Leviticus 19 passage that we are to love our neighbor. What? What's the standard there? Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the standard here is bumped up a little bit. Just a notch or two. That we are to love one another even as I have loved you. You know, not like you love yourself anymore, but as I have loved you. By this, in other words, it is by this familial believer to believer love. That's why it's so crucial to understand this isn't warm, fuzzy, giving everybody a hug, coming to church and, and having those sentimental feelings about everybody. That we're missing the point if we think that. That it is by this kind of objective love that is defined in 1 Corinthians 13 that all men, that is unbelievers, will know that you are my disciples. Now, a disciple is more than simply somebody who's a believer. The term disciple is not synonymous with being a believer. A disciple is someone who is advancing and growing in the spiritual life. By this, all men will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is the greatest testimony that believers in the body of Christ have to unbelievers outside the body of Christ? Jesus says it is the love they have for one another. Because there is some sense in this passage in which God has placed it in the souls of unbelievers that this is a, a testimony that, uh, that they recognize and they see that and they know what this means when they see the way one believer treats another believer. And so Jesus is saying that this is the highest form of witnessing and evidence for Christianity that we can have. Now, this is obviously a transforming kind of love, and so I want to make eight general points about this kind of love by way of introduction. First of all, it is an objective love with an objective standard of evaluation. This is not subjective, it's not emotion, it's not feeling. It has an objective, it is an objective love with an objective model. It is a thinking attitude, not an emotion. Secondly, and some people interpret it this way, it's not the symbol of the cross. You know, Jesus is saying this is the cross, so people can get away from the implication of this by saying, well, it's, Jesus is just talking about going to the cross. It's not talking about that. Third, it's not emotion. I harp on this a lot. But we live in an age that is dominated by emotionalism. And we're all affected by this. And if I relax my guard one inch, y'all are going to just go nuts in emotionalism. Okay? That's what happens because that is the pressure of our culture. And we have to fight that conscientiously every day. It's not emotion. It's not sentimentality. It's not feeling. Point four It's based on character. And this character is uniquely produced in us as part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. May I remind you of our six-month or four-month study of Galatians 5.15 to 26, 
where we saw that, that this whole thing laid out and the first listed fruit of the Spirit there is love. And that was because, as we saw, that's what he was talking about. That love, impersonal love for all mankind and especially this character-based love for all believers is produced by a walk by means of the Holy Spirit. The fifth thing, we see that it challenges unbelievers. It is more, therefore, than simply kindness, politeness, courtesy to one another. Because even unbelievers can have an element of kindness, generosity, politeness, and courtesy towards one another. It goes beyond that. Point six, verse 35, presupposes that the world knows this, that the unbeliever, God, just as God has made His character evident within man in Romans 1, the unbeliever has this thing, something in his soul that recognizes this love of one believer to another when they see it. And finally, this is the greatest apologetic or defense of our faith. Turn the page to John 15. John chapter 15. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than a master. If they persecuted me, excuse me, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they shall, well, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do, do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who has sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for sin. Well, it seems to me I had a typo in my in my notes here, and it's not John 15, uh, 13, 12. Let's go to verse 12. That's where we are. I typed in John 15:50. I have to get that keyboard fixed. <laughs> this is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. And then notice what he says that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Not until this point in human history. Now, Abraham was called the friend of God as an advanced believer in the Old Testament. But here Jesus is applying the term, you are my friend if you do this, to every single believer. So we have a revolutionary shift in terms of the believer's rep, uh, relationship with the Lord. That if we follow this, we achieve the status of being a friend of the Lord's. Now, the characteristics of this, what are they? Let's review them. We have to do an analysis of what took place at the cross. For God so loved the world, He gave His unique Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So what are the characteristics that we see of God's love at the cross? First of all, it is initiated. This means it's not based upon how other people respond to you, but it's based upon who, based on your character, your understanding of who God is and what He has done for you at the cross. It is not based on somebody else's acceptance, rejection. It's not based on your, your likeness of them. It's not based on their personality. It's not based on their wealth or their lack of it. It's based exclusively on the character of God. And God in eternity past initiated the plan of salvation in initiating grace. It took place years ago and it is not based on anything positive in the object of love. Second thing, it is aggressive. That means it takes the first step. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. It does not operate from a position of weakness, trying to curry favor with the object of love, but is, is aggressive because it has an absolute standard as its frame of reference, and that is the character of God. Sometimes people will not step out in love. Love, it makes you vulnerable. Caring for somebody makes you vulnerable. Sometimes you won't do certain things for some people because of what it might come back and do to you. And yet, God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice. He did everything necessary in, despite the reality of rejection. So, aggression rests upon the provision of God and is not concerned with being uh, afraid of loss. In fact, perfect love, mature love, casts out fear. It is characterized by humility. True humility, it does not emphasize its own personal glory. This is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not seek its own. Love, uh, true humility seeks, takes on the attitude of a servant to do whatever is necessary to do what is best for the object of love. In Christ, this included the incarnation, the sacrifice at the cross, and the undeserved imputation of human sin in His humanity. Point number four, this love is intense. It is not weak. It includes a zealous determination to accomplish the goal no matter what the obstacles Fifth characteristic, it is steadfastly loyal. This comes from the Hebrew word that is used for God's love in the Old Testament, chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D, sometimes it's translated faithfulness, sometimes it's translated loyal love, faithful love, steadfast love but it emphasizes the fact that it never gives up and never releases its hold. God is always loyal to His promises to man and strongly desires for all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The sixth characteristic is the characteristic of consecration. Consecration. Just as Jesus Christ set Himself apart to the task of accomplishing our salvation... 
So we set ourselves apart and have been set apart to God in positional sanctification and are being set apart to God, understanding that He has a plan and a purpose and a destiny for us, and we need to uh, renovate and align our thinking uh, to be consistent with His plan and purpose for our lives. Dedication. Dedication has to do with its goal and purpose. Jesus Christ committed Himself from eternity past to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. In the same way, we are to dedicate ourselves to this love for one another. This is not just going to happen. God produces it in us as we grow spiritually. So that means that the precursor to loving one another is having enough doctrine in our soul to develop the capacity for love, which means you have to make Bible study, learning doctrine, coming to Bible class a priority in life. It doesn't happen by just showing up once a week or once a month or occasionally. Part of postmodern thinking is that we sort of have an intuitive knowledge of these things, and that's false. We do not have an intuitive knowledge of the truth. It has to be drilled into us. It has to be inculcated over and over again. And as I said on Wednesday night, for those of you who missed it, when I was at the pre-trib conference specifically listening to Arnold Fruchenbaum field questions, I was convinced that I was ignorant of the Bible. I mean, Arnold was fielding questions and quoting chapter and verse all over the major prophets and minor prophets. It's one thing to know doctrine and know theology, but listening to Arnold, I thought, oh, I'm biblically ignorant. I love somebody's comment afterwards, well, if you're biblically ignorant, what are we, flatlined? (laughs) Somebody got the point. We never know enough. We are never even close. What we often think is enough knowledge is so far from the standard that that we're not even on the ballpark yet, so to speak. I know I'm mixing metaphors, but but we we have we we have such a low standard for what we should know as believers. And I, I, I when I was in seminary, I remember studying the Puritans and the Puritan education system, which, by the way, was one of the greatest education systems there ever was, despite the way it's been uh, run down by modern man. In, in Massachusetts, by 16, around 1680, uh, the town that had the lowest literacy rate in Massachusetts had a literacy rate of 98%. The reason was their education system was driven by doctrine. God spoke to us in a written word, therefore we have to know how to read and write so that we can understand what God has said to us Nothing in life is more important than understanding what God says to us in the written word. Therefore, the most important thing we can do to that end is to learn how to read and write and make sure our children learn how to read and write. So their whole education system was driven by their doctrinal understanding. And we have lost that because when your motivation is simply to be able to make money, you know, it's not that important to really read and write. I mean, it loses its significance. But if your eternal destiny is shaped by your ability to read and write and understand what is written in complex sentences, then you better learn how to read and write to the best of your ability. So dedication, Jesus committed himself, and we are in turn to... This is an emphasis on our 
commitment to learn the Word of God so that we can develop the capacity to love one another. And then finally, devoted. Devoted. He, he devotes himself continuously to the believer. He prays for us continuously. He intercedes for us continuously. It was not simply that he came and died on the cross and then it was over with, but that this is something ongoing and he prays for us on a daily basis. So these words define for us and objectify for us the kind of love Jesus had when he said, even as I have loved you, you also love one another. And then, of course, Peter interrupts him and says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter stills a little dense. He said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Open mouth, insert foot. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. And thus predicts Peter's denial. Well, we'll come back next time and see. look at chapter 14. And then when we get down to 15, Jesus comes back to the subject of love and begins to develop it even more. So as we work our way through these chapters, we are going to see what this means to love one another and the central place this commandment has in our spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning and for the challenge that is placed before us to love one another as Christ has loved us, that this should mark not only our personal relationships, but our marriages, our families, our roles as parents, and our roles as children. This is fundamental to everything we, we are as believers. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that certain. All that is needed is to pray to the Father, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's just as simple as that. You don't have to join a church, walk an aisle, pay money, and promise God to reform your life or anything else. It's just simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, thank you, Father, for the things that we have studied and we pray that you would continuously bring this to mind for our application during the week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.